0: Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime credit bill visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stripe Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out of network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Today's word of the day is commodities. And no, I'm not going to give you a long lecture on how they work or how to invest in them. In fact, I'm far from an expert on the topic. Now, if you're not exactly sure what a commodity is, and I'm sure there are many people that don't, it's probably best, at least for the purpose of today's story, to think of them as a raw material, you know, something that can be purchased, processed, and then turned into something else that we can buy. Examples of commodities would be wheat, corn, cattle, oil, gold, you know, and so on. The first time that I recall ever hearing about commodities was back in 1983. That's when I was watching the movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. In that story, the Duke brothers, who are played by Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, they attempt to corner the frozen orange juice market using insider information. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends. The two of them are financially ruined. Trying to corner the market on a commodity is not something I suggest you ever, ever try to do, no matter how rich you may be. It just typically does not end well. You know, it didn't work for the fictitious Duke brothers, or in real life when the Hunt brothers, you may recall, when they attempted to corner the silver market back in 1980. Another great example, and one that is mostly forgotten today, was the attempt of Anthony DeAngelis, or Tino, that's his nickname, so Tino DeAngelis, to corner the vegetable oil market back in the early 1960s. Born in Harlem, New York on November 3rd, 1915, young Tino seemed like the most unlikely candidate to become a powerful force in the business world. Tino quit school at the age of 16 and then borrowed $500 from his father. That's about $8,200 today to invest in a candy store. That's probably not the best of investments during the Great Depression, and soon of course he had lost all of it. This would prove to be only a minor setback, and pretty soon Tino had moved on to work in a meat and fish market. He was promoted to manager within three years, but he quit after getting in a big huff with his boss, and he soon found employment as the foreman of a large hog processing company in the Bronx. Martino was one of those guys who had a super-sized ego, and he blamed anything and everything that went wrong on someone or something else. So you have to approach everything he said with just you know a bit of skepticism. Here's an example, quote, I had an exceptional knowledge in knowing how to process hogs. Some of my methods, like cutting hogs while moving, cut the cost of processing hogs enormously. Hog processing may not be what most people consider to be a glamorous profession, but Tina was definitely moving up in the world of power and big money. On August 1, 1938, he married Vincenza Bracconeri, which she Americanized as Virginia, and the newlyweds proceeded to move into an apartment in her parents' home. Not long after, they gave birth to a son named Thomas. In 1938, the 23-year-old Tino decided to venture out on his own, and he invested $2,000 that he had saved up into M&D Cutters. What a name for a butcher, M&D Cutters. He claimed to have cleared $300,000 by the third year, which would be over $5 million today. Once World War II had ended, Tino launched a new firm, and it had a much better name. It was appropriately titled DeAngelo's Packing Company, and it was located in North Bergen, New Jersey. You see, with Europe recovering from the ravages of war, Tino astutely predicted that there would be a great profit to be made in exporting U.S. produced goods. In 1947, Tino secured a contract with the Yugoslav government, for $1 million worth of lard. That's a lot of lard. But after delivery, they turned around and sued him for delivering a substandard product. His firm had no choice but to pay the Yugoslavs $100,000 to settle the complaint. His next move up the corporate ladder occurred in 1949. That's when Tino purchased controlling interest in the Adolf Goebel Company. They were a meat packing firm which was also located in North Bergen. Of course, he immediately installed himself as company president and once again he was accused of delivering an inferior product. In this case, Goebel had a contract to provide 18,900,000 pounds or about 8.6 million kilograms of smoked meat for the federal school lunch program. The feds charge he delivered 2 million pounds a little over 900,000 kilograms, he delivered 2 million pounds of uninspected and unusable meat that was also falsely weighed. This resulted in the government overpaying him $31,000. In what seems like a little bit of deja vu here, Gobel was required to pay a $100,000 fine, and the company was prohibited from bidding on future government contracts. By July 1953, Gobel was bankrupt, and DeAngelis, he was out as president. And now we start getting to the good part. On November 14, 1955, DeAngelis started the company that would forever place him in the history books. It was called the Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Refining Corporation, and it was located in Bayonne, New Jersey. Now, Tino was making a really risky bet here. That's because at the time, giant, well-financed corporations in the Midwest well, they crush and process their beans into vegetable oils right near their source. That's because it was a lot cheaper. And then they ship the finished product down the Mississippi and then off to their final destination overseas. The catch was that these conglomerates didn't secure the foreign contracts. Instead, that was done by separate export companies. Tino's idea was very simple. He would have the unrefined oil shipped to Bayonne, process them into a final product, and then sell the oil with a very small profit to the export companies. You know, make it up in volume. His price would be so low that none of the big Midwest players would dare try to enter the foreign market. It worked incredibly well, but no one could ever figure out how Tino made a profit. You know, there's an old motto in business. You buy low and you sell high. It's as simple as that. But Tino seemed to always be doing it in reverse. He was paying more than anyone else to purchase the crude vegetable oil in the Midwest. Then he paid the rail freight to have it shipped all the way to the East Coast, processed it, and then somehow sold it to the exporters at prices lower than any company could match. It just made no sense. Ally grew rapidly, and soon Tino had set up at least a dozen other affiliated companies. They had names like Transworld Refining Corporation, and the shortening corporation of America. Very catchy, huh? Well, catchy names were clearly not Tino's forte, but by the late 1950s, his company supplied an estimated 75% of all the edible oil that was shipped overseas. His total annual revenue exceeded $200 million. That'd be over $1.7 billion today. Quote, We did very well the first three or four years, Tino continued. The reason we did very well was because we had the largest companies in the United States who were glad to do business with us. In fact, Tino Tino's doing so incredibly well, when Adolf Goebel emerged from bankruptcy in 1958, its creditors insisted that Tino be reinstated as a company president. You can probably guess this is a really bad move on their part. Just four months later, Tino was indicted for perjury. That was the result of a Securities and Exchange Commission investigation into the claim that Global borrowed money using LARD inventory that never, ever existed. It was used as collateral. Well, the whole case collapsed when the star witness changed his testimony. And if that wasn't bad enough, next Tino was charged with not paying $1.5 million in income tax. But of course, just like usual, in the end, Tino reached a settlement. He agreed to pay the US government a lump sum of $50,000 plus $5,000 every three months for the next 10 years. Now, I'm sure you're going to be shocked by this. His bad dealings continued. In 1960, the US Department of Agriculture contended that Tino and his conglomerate of companies had duped the government out of $1.2 million. As a result, all Latinos' businesses were banned from participating in the Food for Peace program. If you don't know what the Food for Peace program is, let me just tell you that it was started in 1954, and its goal was to send surplus U.S. crops around the world to those in need. But it had a double effect. One is by buying all these crops, it kept the crop prices in the United States very, very high. The farmers loved that. And second, the goal was we give you food really cheap or for free, and we spread goodwill. Of course, the Food for Peace program was a major cash cow for Tino, so it should come as no surprise that Tino paid $1.5 million to settle that claim and of course have all of his companies reinstated. Needless to say, this was an incredibly bad decision on the government's part. For a one-year period starting in June 1961, Tino's Shortening Corporation of America ships $70 million worth, or about $575 million today. They ship $70 million worth of shortening and vegetable oils as part of the program. Every can proudly bore the words, Donated by the People of the United States of America. Well, they wouldn't be proud of what Tino shipped. In an effort to cut costs, inferior quality cans were used, and soon warehouses all around the globe were filled with leaking cans of rancid oil. The federal government lost every penny that it had spent. Of course, Tino always blamed everything on someone else, and this was no exception. He claimed there was nothing wrong with the cans. The real problem was that the government didn't heed his warning that the cans needed to be stored in air-conditioned warehouses. One of the problems of dealing in such high volumes of oil is that you need a large, constant cash flow. So let me ask you a simple question. Knowing everything you just heard about Tino's reputation, would you lend this guy any money? I'm hoping that your answer is a big, fat no. And that really was the case for some banks and creditors, But you can be sure as long as the money kept rolling in, companies were lining up to lend Tino money. Of course, there's no feasible way to physically give another company millions of gallons of oil as collateral. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a single lender that has the facilities to do so. Instead, the industry does something known as field warehousing. In simple terms, you hire an independent company to come in and verify that the oils are truly in the tanks and then they take total control of those tanks. The field warehousing firm then issues what's known as a warehouse receipt. This is proof that the commodity really exists, which in turn can be taken to a lender and used as collateral. Should for some reason the borrower default on the loan, the lender who has that receipt owns the oil, and they can then sell it and get their money back. Tino used the services of two field warehousing companies to operate his business. The first has a very familiar name, American Express Field Warehousing Corporation. Started in 1944 as a way for its parent company, yeah, that one, American Express, it was a way for them to earn more money. But this small subsidiary was never profitable. That is, until Tino's cousin Michael DeAngelis walked into company headquarters in 1957 and hired them on the spot. As Allied grew, the company required the services of a second warehousing firm. They chose the Harbor Tank Storage Company. At the very peak of Tino's operation, these two companies would issue warehouse receipts for more than 1.8 billion pounds. That's over 840 million kilograms of oil. It was worth over $175 million. That'd be over $1.4 billion today. Not only were Tino's businesses doing incredibly well, he was personally rolling in the dough. He was never one to live a lavish lifestyle, but he was incredibly generous to his immediate staff. Each was paid $400 per week. That'd be about $3,200 per week today. And nearly every single one of them drove a Cadillac, and they were all paid for by Allied. While some did do some real work, it seemed like others did little to nothing. Tino seems just like to have these people around. Perhaps no one did better than a twice-divorced mother of four named Lillian Pascarelli. She received the obligatory Cadillac, a very large down payment on a house, an annual salary of $25,000, plus she got $100 per week from an allied affiliate. Her job, you ask? Social hostess. We well, can fill in the blanks there. Tino always denied that there was anything but a professional relationship between the two, but the fact that they ended up married many years later, I think that suggests otherwise. In August of 1961, Ally landed its biggest contract ever. The Spanish government agreed to purchase 275 million pounds of oil for $36.5 million. The problem was that Tino had less than 20% of that oil on hand. So he turned to his buyers and he told them to start buying heavily in the soybean oil's futures market. Once nearly all the oil had been purchased, though, the Spaniards canceled the contract. Tino was in a bind. At first, he started to sell the oil below cost to cover his expenses, but there was some good news on the horizon. The U.S. Agricultural Department predicted that exports would reach record levels in 1962, so Tino continued to purchase oil, even though the government kept lowering and lowering and lowering their export prediction. At some point, Tino realized that there was a better way to do this. He decided that he needed to corner the market on soybean and cottonseed oils tino would then sell the oils back to other firms while the price was high and clear a magnificent profit but in order to do this he needed to create the sense that the oil was in high demand which it wasn't so initially he had friends and family members do the purchasing but that wasn't enough so then he started setting up dummy companies and hiring outside brokerage firms to increase the volume now we're going to take a short pause here to hear from our sponsor but when we return, I'll tell you all about Tino's downfall, the shocking surprise that was uncovered afterward, how JFK's assassination ties into this whole thing, and the way that one of the richest men in the world today made a good chunk of change off of everyone else's misfortune.
0: Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Sean checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: We were just at the point where Anthony Tino DeAngelis was purchasing oil futures at a frenzied pace. By November 1963, Tino had purchased 22,600 contracts for $160 million. That would be about $1.3 billion today. But there was a big problem here. That is that Tino's attempt to corner the oil market totally destroyed any chances he ever had of landing a large contract. I mean, think about it, who in their right mind would buy a large amount of oil at record high prices? Well, the answer was no one, and even worse. Vegetable oils are perishable. You can't store them away like gold or silver to sell them in the future. Tino's house of cards began to collapse on Friday, November 15, 1963. That's when an inspector from the Commodity Exchange Authority walked into Tino's Bayon office and demanded to see the books. You can bet they weren't on the up and up. Also, right around the same time, the U.S. Senate made a decision to halt negotiations over the export of wheat to Russia. Speculators took this as a sign that the demand for soybean and cottonseed oil would soon also drop. And you know exactly what happened next almost immediately a big sell-off began and the prices just began to plummet. The interesting thing about commodities is that they are purchased on margin. What that means is that little money is needed to make the purchase because the actual raw materials themselves are used as collateral. Of course, should the market drop, then your purchases no longer fully cover what you owe the exchange and they give you 24 hours to pay back that difference. Tino's business empire was about to be destroyed. His brokers called and told Tino that he needed to place more funds into his margin account to the tune of around $20 million. That's about $163 million today. Of course, he didn't have that kind of cash lying around, so Tino made a call to his lawyer that weekend, and Allied was placed into bankruptcy. At this point, no one was overly concerned. After all, everyone had those warehouse receipts for the various oils that was sitting in Tino's tanks. All they needed to do was sell off their oil and their losses would be minimal. Or so they thought. Right after the bankruptcy was filed, officials at the Bunge Corporation, which was one of Tino's largest exporting customers, they became concerned about several large bounced checks they had received from Allied. So inspectors were sent out to the Bayonne tank farm to certify that their $15 million worth of soybean oil was in fact safe. Now as the inspectors made their way through the seemingly endless maze of giant storage tanks and endless piping, they finally located the four tanks that were assigned to Bunge. They were shocked to find that one tank was half full and the other two were totally empty. Welcome to The Case of the Missing Oil. Bunge immediately contacted American Express Warehousing to find out where the missing oil was. Could the inspectors have looked in the wrong tanks? Or was it possibly moved? Well, the answer that Bunge received from American Express only deepened the mystery. American Express claimed that Bunge had already signed off on the oil. So they in turn released it back to Allied two days earlier of course Allied was then allowed to sell the oil. Once word got out about the missing oil, other companies began to wonder if their oil too could be missing. It took quite some time to take inventory, but within the next week it became clear that Tino had pulled a fast one over on the financial industry. Once word got out about the missing oil, other companies began to wonder if their oil too could be missing. Well, it took quite some time to take inventory, but within the next week, it became clear that Tino had pulled a fast one over on the financial industry. Little oil was found in any of the tanks. In fact, what was found was mostly seawater, sludge, gasoline, or even worse, the tanks didn't exist at all. Tino, you see, had been dealing in phantom oil. While there should have been at least 1.8 billion pounds of oil in those tanks, after all the inventory was done, they only found 110 million pounds. Even worse, half of what was found was in soap stock. That was the residue that was left over after all the salad oil was refined. Wall Street was about to face its worst financial disaster since the 1929 stock market crash. Two highly respected brokerage firms, that's Ira Hout and Company and J.R. Wilson and Bean Incorporated, they were on the hook for a lot of money that didn't exist. Hout had borrowed more than $35 million from banks to cover Allied's unmet margin calls, and of course that was money that Tino did not have to pay them back with. Now, they did have a large number of Allied's warehouse receipts, but those had just been proven to be worthless. Even worse it had borrowed more than $100 million to purchase securities on margin for its other customers. For only the second time in its history, the New York Stock Exchange suspended the accounts of these two brokerage firms. What that also meant was that until everything was straightened out, and that could take years as the legal cases wound their way through the courts, that meant that none of the nearly 30,000 clients of these two firms could trade or sell their stocks. They were locked. While this disaster wouldn't have caused economic collapse globally, it certainly would have shaken the foundations of the stock market. Any sudden drop in the financial markets was almost certain to start frenzied selling. Something needed to be done quickly, but there was little time to do so. The stock market had already been badly rattled when on November 22, 1963, the unthinkable occurred. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The market began to plunge and a decision was made to close the stock market 83 minutes early. It remained closed on Monday allowing officials more time to secretly work behind the scenes you know, in an effort to prevent panic and collapse of the market. An agreement was reached to permanently shutter the Ira Halp brokerage firm. Other members of the stock exchange each kicked in enough to save the accounts of all of Halp's customers. Now, Williston & Bean wasn't in as bad a shape, so the financiers put together enough funding to make the company operational again, and it was later absorbed by another company. By the opening bell on Tuesday, a crisis had been averted. So the big question is, how did Tino do it? Well, it all ties back to those warehouse receipts that were issued by American Express and Harbor Tank. These were intended to certify how much oil Allied physically owned but the reality was that Tino and his staff were forging receipts. Now, there's no question that there were legitimate receipts, but most of them were not. As Allied needed more and more money, they simply created more receipts to use as collateral. At the time of Allied's collapse, it was estimated that 51 different companies held $175 million, or about $1.4 billion worth today, of counterfeit receipts. As hard as it is to believe, both warehousing companies did not use their own employees. Instead, they hired Tino's men to secure, inspect, and inventory all of the tanks. That's like hiring the fox to guard the hen house. They forged paperwork, read off phony tank readings to Amex workers, and took full advantage of the oldest trick in the book, that oil floats on water. Many of the tanks, when fully drained, were found to have been filled with 40 feet of water that was capped with two feet of oil floating on the top. And that's not all. When Tino hired Harbor Tank, he let them certify tanks for which American Express had already issued receipts. In other words, they were double receipts or double the volume of what he had in inventory. Even worse, Tino took claim to tanks on the farm that he had never leased in the first place. They were leased to other companies. Some were filled with gasoline the entire time, while others were in such bad shape they were permanently out of commission. Of the 41 tanks that Harbor Freight thought that they owned, 23 were filled with petroleum oil, seven were unfit for use, and one never existed at all. That means that only 10 were legit, yet not a single one of them had any vegetable oil in it. Now it's not that American Express hadn't been alerted to potential problems. All the signs, in fact, were plainly visible, but the thought of big profits simply clouded their eyes. There had been word on the street for years that there was a lot of trickery going on at Allied. In fact, in June 1960, Amex received a phone call from a man named Taylor. He said that he worked the night shift at Allied. He claimed that water was in the tanks, and that specifically, tank number 6006 had been built with a hollow metal column that ran from the top to the bottom Of the tank and it was filled with oil for sampling purposes. Supposedly the remainder of the tank's volume was filled with water. So American Express sent investigators out to check the tank and they found no problems. Now the fact that Allied required 24 hours notice before any inspection could take place probably allowed them to do the old you know switcheroo beforehand. When tank 6006 was finally opened after the Allied collapse it took 12 days to drain and contain nothing but worthless seawater. But it turns out that Tino had some other tricks up his sleeve. Remember Bunge, the company that initially was missing the oil? Well, they would loan Allied up to $20 million at a time to purchase crude oil for refining. When it was time to pay Bunge back, an Allied messenger would pick up a cashier's check at the bank, sometimes for $1 million or more, and hand it off to officials at Bunge. In exchange, Allied would get their oil receipts back. Now what Bunge didn't know is that Tino had an inside guy. He had planted a man named James Katerina into their financial department, and when the check was handed off to Katerina for depositing, he would run out of his office into the hall or into the bathroom and give the check right back to the messenger. In turn, that messenger would then race across the street to the issuing bank and cancel the check. Now, Katerina was very good at cooking the books, and that prevented Bunge from catching onto the swindle until it was too late. This scheme alone cost Bunge over $6.8 million. As you can imagine, lawsuits were flying in from all directions. It seemed like everyone was suing everyone else. At one point, more than 200 lawyers were working on the case. Now, American Express was faced with a total of $210 million in lawsuits, so it had no choice but to place its subsidiary into bankruptcy. While it was under no obligation to do so, since, of course, those warehouse receipts were mostly fraudulent, American Express agreed in April 1964 upon a plan to reimburse approximately $60 million. Allied's demise triggered the failure or bankruptcy of more than 20 different companies. To this day, no one can say where all the missing oil or money went. Estimates typically put losses to everyone involved at over $200 million, and that doesn't include those who lost money in the stock or commodity exchanges. Long rumored but never proven, it has been thought that Tina was backed by the mob. FBI wiretaps of several members of the Mafia placed Tino's profit from the swindle over its entire run at $438 million. That would be over $3.5 billion today. When Tino was finally arrested, he faced what was believed to be the largest amount ever set up for bail up until that point. Harbor Tank had filed a $46.5 million claim against Tino, and they invoked a seldom-used law that required a person to post bail equal to the amount they had been accused of defrauding. The judge sensibly reduced bail from $46.5 million to $150,000, but Tino said he didn't have that either and was forced to stay in jail. It should come as no surprise that several months later it was discovered that he had $500,000 hidden in a Swiss bank account. No other funds were ever recovered. On January 8, 1965, Tino pled guilty and was sentenced to 20 years at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. While there, he worked in the kitchen, exercised daily, and he helped to establish the prison's first chapter of the NAACP. The guy in the cell next to him was none other than Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa, who had been imprisoned for jury tampering. After seven years, Tino was granted parole. Quote, I came here weighing 250 and I leave at 170. Spiritually, physically, and morally, this prison saved my life. It wasn't long before Tino was back to his old tricks. He ran a group of companies with such great names as the Rex Pork Company, Miller Pork Packers, Meadow Meats, and my favorite Prime Protein Pigs. Since he was indebted to the IRS for over $8 million, Tino didn't own any of the businesses, Everyone knew who was in charge. In 1980, after cheating farmers and suppliers out of an estimated $13 million, Tino found himself right back in prison serving an additional seven years for racketeering, conspiracy, and mail fraud. Three years later, Tino was once again paroled with the stipulation that he had no direct or indirect financial interest in the pork industry. So where does he end up? working in the Finger Lakes region of New York, operating the Natural Lean Pork Company. This stint would get him into the newspapers one last time. On August twentieth, 1993, 77-year-old Tino was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Why? He had used $660,000 worth of forged letters from the Savings Bank of the Finger Lakes to purchase more than $1 million worth of pork From a Canadian firm. Quote, From 1948 to 1963, I was the largest exporter of vegetable oils and animal fats in the United States. I was the salad oil king. I had 32 plants. The government acknowledges I did 68% of all exports year after year. Anthony DeAngelis, the self-proclaimed salad oil king, was 93 years old when he passed away on September 26, 2009. One can't help but wonder where all that money went. Hopefully he buried it all in a watertight container in my backyard. I'll leave you with one final piece of the story. When Tino's oil empire collapsed, there were many who thought that American Express was finished, you know, kaput. Its stock price was cut in half virtually overnight, but there was one man who saw great potential in the company. After checking out local banks, hotels, and restaurants, he saw that the scandal had no effect on the use of American Express traveler's checks or their credit cards. He was certain that the company was financially sound and would recover quickly. He made a very big bet by investing $13 million – that was 40% of his partnership's capital he invested $13 million in American Express stock. It was the largest single investment that they made up until that time, and it paid off handsomely. Two years later, the stock had tripled, and they pocketed a cool $20 million. That man is none other than billionaire Warren Buffett. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: And here is our wandering vaquero, Frank Graham. Buenas noches, señoras y señores. Tonight, we're going to relive the story of the Rancho Santa Gertrudis, a story of romance and achievement selected from the vast files of the Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles. Yes, Frank, it's the business of the Title Insurance and Trust Company to know the facts about land ownership. And since the story of the ownership of most of the land you and I and our listeners own and live on dates back more than a century and a half, To the first grants made by the king of spain the title company's records must go back that far too they include the essential information about every one of the many different transfers of title to every square foot of land in this entire county including of course the rancho santa gertrudes whose story you're going to tell us tonight
1: that commercial for the title insurance and trust company is from the september 4th 1941 broadcast of the radio show romance of the ranchos The show ran between 1941 and 1942, and it told stories of the men and women who tamed the wilds of California. Title Insurance and Trust Company was formed on January 15, 1894, after the merger of two Los Angeles companies. They were the Abstract and Title Insurance Company and the Los Angeles Abstract Company. Title Insurance and Trust, that's the sponsor of the show, They eventually morphed into the TI Corporation, and finally into TICOR. The company was purchased by Chicago Title & Trust on March 8, 1991. Then Chicago Title, in turn, was acquired by Fidelity National Financial in 2000. It's now the largest title organization in the world. So here's a question for you. Do you know what the original name of the classic game Twister was? Here are your choices. Was it one, the body bender game, two dots in a box, three footsie, or four pretzel? Well, you think about that one for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. In other news, you've probably heard of the latest fad among kids, the Dangerous Tide Pod Challenge. So I decided to look through my files, and I chose three other fads. At least they were called that at the time. I'm not really sure they were fads but these are fads that have come and gone over the years. In our first story, on October 27, 1939, the American Medical Association's health magazine Hygieia printed a warning that was written by Dr. Henry A. Christian of Brookline, Massachusetts. It warned that the fad of excessive exercise was dangerous to one's health. In what is probably pretty good news for all of you couch potatoes out there, the good doctor advised, quote, Moderate body activity, short of causing fatigue, is desirable for all, but this is entirely different from what is usually meant by exercise. He continued, Most pernicious is the habit so common in America of the weekend or all-day golf game or the brief vacation with days filled with incessant activity often leads a life nearly devoid of physical exertion. Dr. Christian contended, quote, All too often people collapse or die as the result of unwanted exertion or precipitate an attack of serious heart disturbance, which then necessitates weeks of enforced rest. He did offer the following advice, quote, Here's a good rule to follow. If after one hour of relaxed rest one is still conscious of considerable fatigue, next time shorten the amount or decrease the vigor of the exercise. In our next story, on July 5, 1962, Arizona state authorities tried to calm the public by telling them that the latest craze of glue sniffing was just a fad. While there were calls to ban the sale of glue to minors, and the public was in somewhat of a panic over how to deal with the situation, the statistics did not back it up. Statewide, records showed that there had been no fatalities or permanent damage from the sniffing of glue. 68 juveniles had been arrested for doing illegal things as a result of glue sniffing, but it was pointed out that this was far less than the number of teens arrested for alcohol consumption. It was also noted that a number of cases were not reported to the police. Of those, there were reported cases of blindness, mental impairment, and addiction. Most of these kids had been sniffing plastic model glue, which is technically known as polystyrene cement. Its active ingredient is toluene and its effects were, in general, minor. As a side note to the story, in 1967 Charles Miller, who was the president of Tester Corporation at the time, they're the leading manufacturer of model cars and airplanes, he charges employees to come up with a way to keep people from sniffing the glue to get high. Their solution was incredibly simple. They added horseradish to the glue. Miller shared the secret and greeting with all of his competitors, and he received a presidential letter of commendation for his efforts. A bit of trivia about this is that Miller was the father of actress Susan St. James. She's mostly retired today, but you may remember her from her lead roles in Macmillan and Wife and Kate and Allie. On July 15, 1982, The Maryland Poison Control Center in Baltimore reported that 33 adults and 46 children had consumed a brand new lemon-scented dishwashing liquid that was called Sunlight. Maybe you use it today. Apparently, free samples of the new soap had been mailed by the manufacturer Lever Brothers all throughout the Mid-Atlantic states as part of their product launch. I even remember my mom getting a bottle in the mail. Now, the bright yellow bottles featured a picture of a lemon slice along with text indicating that the soap was made with real lemon juice. You know exactly what happened next. The bottle clearly stated caution, harmful if swallowed, but people went right ahead and used it as lemon juice. Whether they added it to their iced tea or whatever, the results were not pleasant. Most typically, they experienced nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and sore throats, But nothing was reported to be serious. Should one accidentally consume it, Poison Control advised simply to drink lots of water or milk to dilute it. Better yet, don't drink it at all. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you what the original name of the classic game Twister was. Did you know the answer? Well, if you think about how humans twist themselves until they're limb-locked, it should come as no surprise that the game was originally called Pretzel. The problem was that the name had already been trademarked, so game manufacturer Milton Bradley had no choice but to come up with an alternative. The idea for Twister came about in 1966, while two men, Neil Rabins and Chuck Foley, were working for the reynolds Guyer House of Design in St. Paul, Minnesota. According to Chuck, quote, Neil Rabins had an idea for a mat with silver dollar-sized circles where you try to make a person fall down. I said... Line those up and make them larger. We picked colors and designed a spinner that told you where to move. Initial sales of Twister were fairly lackluster until a scout for NBC's Tonight Show spotted it at the 1967 New York Toy Fair. As soon as viewers saw host Johnny Carson playing Twister with actress Ava Gabor, sales skyrocketed. Yet, its inventors didn't do very well financially. You see, they were employees of their company, and they were not entitled to any royalties. Supposedly, their boss Ren Geyer chose not to share the royalties with the two men, so they ended up leaving the company. A lawsuit was filed and settled at a court giving the game's two inventors 2.5% of the gross profit for three years. What's interesting is that Ren Geyer can still be seen on TV claiming that he invented the game. Yet, a quick check of the U.S. patent, which is number 3,454,279, which was for, quote, apparatus for playing a game wherein the players constitute the game pieces, it doesn't show his name at all. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Now, if you've been keeping track, you may have noticed that this episode marks the 10th anniversary of this podcast. Just a reminder to like the show on Facebook, and if you haven't done so already, I'd greatly appreciate it if you head on over to iTunes and leave some positive comments about the show. As many of you know, for the past few years, I've been uploading the scripts to these stories along with any images that I have gathered to my website. If you want to see them, just go to uselessinformation.org and it'll all be there. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, the Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. It's officially launching right around this time that I post this episode, so I'm a bit unsure as to where this will all lead. There are currently 12 different history podcasts on the network, and I'm certain more will be added as time goes by. Simply go to recordedhistory.net and you'll see the links to all of them. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye! Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of
0: places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes
1: in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.